It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. For decades, the Gambino crime family seemed like an untouchable institution that dominated the realm of New York City lawlessness. With roots that ran deep into the early 20th century, the Gambinos were one of the five families, the leading players in the Italian-American mafia. A formidable force, the Gambinos produced a number of infamous leaders within the syndicate, such as underboss Salvatore Gravano, otherwise known as Sammy the Bull, and John Gotti, the Teflon Don, the ruthless boss of the family. Gregory De Palma, known for his celebrity crew, was a capo regime for the Gambinos. Seated at the table in the post-Gaudi regime was Jack Falcone, a Sicilian jewel thief and drug dealer, new to the Gambino family. Thanks to his close ties to De Palma, Falcone was even invited to become a made man and learn the secrets of the Gambino family. Little did they know, Falcone had some secrets of his own. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. FBI Special Agent Jack Garcia spent 26 years with the Bureau, working over 100 operations undercover. But the role he's most known for playing is that of Jack Falcone. Creating the identity of Falcone required thorough studying and lots of practice. Garcia had to forsake his Cuban background and become a convincing Italian, learning how to eat, talk, act, and even dress in order to avoid raising suspicions within the Gambino family. Jack Garcia played the part of Falcone so well that he was invited to take a blood oath and become a made member of the Gambino family. Thanks to the risks he was willing to take in order to infiltrate the mafia, Jack Garcia was responsible for the arrest and conviction of 39 notorious mobsters. In his book, Making Jack Falcone, Jack Garcia shares details from this famous undercover assignment. Today, he joins me to discuss how he was first introduced to the Gambino family and how he managed to live as both a gangster and as an undercover agent. We didn't intend to infiltrate the Gambino crime family. We were infiltrating the, uh, it it was the uh, Albanian crime family. They were very powerful in New York at that time. They were kind of working piecemeal for all the organized crime families. So what had happened was there was a strip club up in the Bronx that was being shaken down by these Albanian gangsters. And now these guys were serious. I mean, they would come in, smack people around. They would demand uh, uh, money to be paid as protection money every month. Uh, And if money didn't come their way, then destruction will. And what happened was uh, we went in there trying to identify who these Albanians were, as well as trying to see where that would lead us. 
Well, sure enough, that thing went all over the place. When they went into the place, started smacking people around, their their guests also started shooting up in the air in the strip club. And, of course, nobody started coming to the club after that because there was so much violence that these Albanians created just because they wanted to get paid $5,000 a month for so-called protection money. But out of the clear blue, this dapper-dressed mob guy by the name of Louis Filippelli walks in and says, hey, I heard you guys had a problem, and we can make that problem go away. You pay us, and we'll ensure that the Albanians don't return. But that was the beginning of Jack Falcone. That's where I was introduced and where I made the payment to the mobsters. And sure enough, the Albanians never came. So it was kind of like this relationship that they had where they would create mayhem and then the mob guys would walk in and clean it up for a fee. And now you would have that particular business in the coffers of the Gambino crime family or any of the other families. So that's kind of how we began. And But what happened is things went along with us trying to uh, uh, not only investigate the Albanians, but also look into these new mob guys that we had no information on. Every time you see television, you see that famous FBI chart where they have all the names and the faces. Well, these were guys that were not in there. These were guys who were flying under the radar. So we were able to identify them, and then we started putting surveillance on them. We started seeing that they were seeing the right people, acting the right way, and then we began this investigation to try to get in the uh, Louis Filippelli and his cohorts of the Gambino crime family. And then after that, Greg De Palma was released from jail, and the rest is history. Now, Greg De Palma, I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, I mean, he's quite a character. He's what they call a celebrity gangster. I mean, years ago, actually when I was in college, he had a nightclub in Westchester called the Westchester Premier Theater, where the who's who played. I'm talking Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Rita Franklin. The who's who would play there in this mob place, and Greg Palmer, along with a couple of other gangsters, own this location, the uh, Westchester Premier Theater. But as gangsters would have it, give it a few years, they just blew everything out, robbed the place blind, and went into bankruptcy. So Greg De Palma was kind of known in the neighborhood as this celebrity guy who had his pulse on Hollywood. He knew who the guys were, the celebrities, and that's the guy who we decided to hitch our wagon to. And the rest was history. Now, Greg De Palma had a reputation. He liked to talk. Well, we in the FBI, we like to listen. So it was good us arranged marriage that this guy liked to talk, and that way we were able to see the inner workings of the Gambino crime family, like who is running the family now that John Gotti and Peter Gotti and the rest of the Gotti clan was out there uh, just uh, destroyed. So we hitched our wagon and the rest was history. I was able to identify the, uh, the hierarchy of the Gambino crime family as well as the other families and, th- and then on find out what they were involved in. And that's kind of the beginning 
of making Jack Falcone. Mm. So let's talk about the middle when Jack Falcone was deep in the thick of it. Now we know you are a Cuban and you were playing a Sicilian, a third generation Sicilian American. You and the FBI had done your due diligence. You had even identified your you know, narrative parents, where they were buried in Miami. You had everything set. You were coached on how to pronounce words and how to eat, how to act, how to behave. So then you you subsumed this role. And you said before, you know, you can teach certain skills. You can teach how to shoot a gun, but you can't teach how to be undercover. So share with us a few stories about what it was like to be undercover as an entirely different identity infiltrated deep into the most notorious, arguably, crime family of New York City at that time, Jack? Yeah, that's, uh, well, kudos to you. You did your homework well. I mean, you know, it is so true that uh, what had happened is early on when I became an agent, which was in 1980, keeping in mind that Hoover died in 72, he was not really in favor of the undercover technique. So, and also the FBI they didn't really represent the demographics in our society. Everybody looked like an FBI agent. Three-piece suit, the hat, the wingtip shoes. You could spot them a mile away. The G-man is coming. So now that Hoover passed away, more diversity started to come in, i.e. myself were excluded, because I was born in Havana, Cuba, and I came here when I was nine years old. So we had, I grew up in the Bronx. So I grew up in a kind of tough area. So I, I, I knew the streets a little better than maybe some uh, or not, but felt comfortable around it. So I was able to take on this undercover role because it was a natural for me. I felt comfortable about being around all types of people, whether they were good, whether they were bad. I never said, okay, you know, I, I was just very comfortable around everyone. I didn't have to necessarily stick to a certain group in order to be comfortable. I was a mixture of everything. So when I got into the uh, that, I was a natural, I guess, to get in. However, I didn't expect to eating rice and beans to start eating manigot, you know, and start going because now I had to take on this role where I was supposed to fake these guys that I was one of their own, that I'm an Italian. And I think the reason I was successful was because the case agent who I worked was he himself Italian. His name was Natale Parisi. I mean, it don't come any more Italian than that. And he taught me the ways. He taught me, like, these are the foods. These are the pronunciations. This is what you have to do to survive. This is the way the mob is structured. Now, keeping in mind, uh, Emily, that I worked solely in uh, working narcotics because I speak Spanish fluently. And I'm a natural for that field. So when they came with this offer about infiltrating organized crime, I never really knew it. I didn't know it, but I knew as much as everybody else did from watching TV shows or being in the neighborhood where we all knew the guy with the crooked nose and the Cadillac. You know, we kind of kept our distance, but he kind of protected our community, you know. So we were in, I, I, I kind of was interested in, now learning this whole thing. So I totally immersed into this culture and I passed myself off. And at first, I didn't think I was going to be believable. But sure enough, no one questioned it. You know, everybody accepted it. And I wasn't going to step up and say, hey, guys, I'm fooling you. I'm one of your own. 
So it, it was an interesting thing. I did all my uh, studies, I guess, in Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, where they have some of the great restaurants and uh, some of the great delis that they have. Shout out to all of them out there. And I, and I learned the right pronunciation. And even though my role was that I was a guy from Miami, Florida, I grew up around dopers, a lot of Cubans, because Miami, as we know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a lot of Cubans in the Miami area. <laughs> so I was kind of, that's where my world came. So I was all set to enter this uh, role as, with the help of the FBI, providing the proper documentation to become Jack Falcone. And so share with us a few of those stories behind the scenes, ones that we haven't heard before. Well, one of the interesting uh, great stories was that, uh, uh, you know, at that time when I was on the cover, The Sopranos was on. And The Sopranos was, as you know, such a popular show that we all went home to watch it on on Sundays because I wanted to see what the new episode was. Well, I wasn't watching it. I was kind of living it. So what was kind of interesting is uh, in order to maintain my role and authenticate my role, I had to prove to them that I was an earner, that I was a guy who was a knockaround guy who kind of made money, you know, in the black market, a guy who uh, stole from here, had his own little crew and all of that. And if they, they weren't looking, the mob doesn't post in the uh, classifieds and say, hey, you want to be a gangster, you know, or because you're funny to hang around you. It's all about making money in the mob and it's all about money floating up. Never floats down. It always floats up. So what happened was one of the roles was that uh, plasma televisions were a hot item at that time. So we came up with the story that I had some guys in the Washington Heights area who were stealing some tractor trailers and I had a couple of plasma TVs. So Greg Department immediately said, hey, let's give the boss of the family, let's give him a plasma TV. He would love it. So sure enough, the boss was a very cautious guy. He was on parole. There weren't any problem. So we go and we give him his TV, Plasma. He's loving the TV. And sure enough, Sunday comes on. And there is the episode with Robert Loggia where he's is not a former wise guy who comes in, not happy the way the family is being run. He's causing problems for Tony. So they figure, let's get this guy out of here. And they drop a dime with his parole officer that he was storing plasma TVs in his house, in his garage. So sure enough, the next scene you see is Robert Loggia in a, in a prison bus being sent back that was set up. Now, I get a call about 4 o'clock in the morning from Greg De Palma. He says, Jackie boy, I need to see you now. I go, what's the matter? He goes, I need to see you right away. So I go see him, and he's telling me, he goes, where'd you get those TVs? What do you mean where I got it? Uh, you know where they came from? My guys. So he said, they're stolen? I said, of course they're stolen. So he says, I knew it, but I somehow was hoping not, because you would not believe the problem that I had. Yesterday, Robert Vaccaro and I, who was the acting skipper, we had to go and get the TV off the mount because uh, Arnold Scutieri, who was the acting boss of the family, saw the episode of The Sopranos, and he thought that they were going to come knocking on his door in the morning and lock him up. So here comes this TV. I go, well, what did they do with the TV? He says, I don't know. They probably threw it in the junkyard. He says, uh, you know, he got panicked with that, and, and he didn't. So 
here is this whole story. The old saying is, uh, uh, does real life uh, match Hollywood? What is the saying? Truth is stranger it, than fiction. Yes, truth is stranger than fiction. It, it yeah. totally happened. And and that was the kind of the life that that whole world, my exposure to it was. Again, having been exposed to working narcotics, where the money and the violence is real, I know in the mob also that is real, but not to the intensity of these drug cartels. I mean, you're dealing with a whole different species when you're dealing with uh, the drug cartels as far as their violence. The the violence within the organized crime is kind of control. There's a saying that they only do guys that are in the life as far as getting killed and all of that, but that's been proven wrong. One example is John Gotti's uh, neighbor who by accident ran over uh, his son uh, and killed his son. It was a tragic, tragic accident. Killed his son. Well, that man who did it uh, supposedly was apologetic, but he's disappeared off the face of the earth. So the thought of they only kill their own. Here's a guy who was not in the life. He got wasted by the mob. So where the cartels will just take care of your whole family and they'll let you live for a while and then they'll torture you and come back and decapitate you. So it's a whole different element uh, when I was working dope when I was here. Uh, for some reason or other, as you know, the mob is so romanticized by us all. I mean, all you have to do is go to Atlantic City or go to a restaurant on a weekend and you see these fake guys, mafiosos. And it's an old saying is that everybody's a gangster until that gangster walks into the room. <laughs> you know, and they'll all put on their pinky rings, probably a cubic zirconia, three three carrots, and then they'll put their fake Rolexes on, you know, and the, the, everything all decked out and try to act like gangsters, you know. But uh, it, it, it's something people emulate. You don't see people like that when it comes to the cartels. Cartel guys don't like to show what they're all about. They're all about... Once they bring that notoriety onto themselves or that uh, 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 that attraction to them, they just simply disappear. And, and where the mob dies, we know where they're at at all times. If I'm following you or you're a gangster and all of a sudden I lose you in traffic, I know where you're going to go. You're going to go either to the clubhouse. You're going to go to your gumada's house. You're going to go to your mom's house. But I'll catch you within the end of the day. You're not disappearing. Because they're creatures of habits where the cartel people just poof, disappear. And next thing you know, they'll show up in California or in Chicago and work that. So they're a little more uh, discreet as with the gangsters and the so-called celebrity gangsters like John Gotti or Joey Merlino in Philadelphia and some of these other guys that just uh, want everybody to know that they're a gangster. They're not like the old school gangsters when they they lived in the shadows and no one knew what they were here. You get your button or you get straightened out. You want everybody to know that uh, it's, it's changed. The mob is, has totally changed. And uh, it's unfortunate about what's happening now, because even in the FBI, it's no longer an investigative priority. It wasn't in the top 10 when I got in it. It fluctuated from number one to five to six as an investigative priority. Now, we don't even uh, even have them in the top 20. 
I mean, we have the obvious terrorism. We have white collar crime. We have cyber uh, attacks. We have counter foreign intelligence. There's all uh, terrorism as well. That's our uh, priority as they should be. But what's happening as we're keeping them uh, not being investigated, they're growing exponentially. And we've seen that because we used to have five squads full of 20 or so uh, agents working them around the clock. Now you have two. Sometimes they'll throw a third squad. So what does that mean? That means that these guys are out there running and they're doing what they're supposed to have done. And that's why there is so much of a Sicilian influence now of trying to flow underneath the radar in order to do what they do best. And that's extortion, you know, loan sharking, uh, robbing things, theft, whatever it may be. This is what they're doing now. So the mob is not dead. Far from it. And even though sometimes you'll read a newspaper article, they locked up 60 guys. Trust me, they're out there. Maybe they're not as polished some of these guys are because they really want everybody to know who they are. There is that Sicilian influence and that old school guys that are keeping these guys grounded. Just let them know that this is a secret criminal society. It is not one that's out there like the Crips and the Blood. This is supposed to be secret. You're not even supposed to ad uh, admit that there is such a family. That's why when you go to uh, cases uh, with the mob guys at trial, there is that fear of allocution. Because part of it is to have them say, I am a member of the Gambino crime family. Just think about that. That's a very big thing that some of these guys are not going to allocute because that's admitting that the mob exists. And they cannot admit that because that is part of what their uh, secret omerta code is all about. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. I'm sort of thinking about um, the analogy that's oftentimes been used um, in the frame of reference of the American military, which is mowing the lawn. And I think about how because of your successful infiltration, hallmarked in part by you being invited to become a made member, which that made history um, in, in terms of law enforcement. But your successful takedown subsequently of over 35 members, capos, captains and the like, that you had a direct impact on the changing of that landscape. And perhaps the re reduction of the priority in part was because the, the mafioso shaped up after that. And then to that point, though, after you mow the lawn, eventually it's going to grow back. Can you speak to the invitation to become a made member and how, when you received that, it tied into the fact that every day you were playing a part you were playing a fictional identity that consumed the majority of your time, but not your soul. Or did it? Was there any type yeah, of blending? Yeah, it consumed me 24-7. I mean, uh, having worked so many undercover cases like I have in the past, is this was totally consuming. And the reason being because there is so much, there is a constant thing of you having 
to explain your whereabouts to these mob guys. There is so much accountability with uh, working organized crime. It isn't like when I was working the dopers, the cartels, the dirty cops, the politicians, whatever it was. I didn't have to tell them what I was doing. That's none of their business. If they came to me and asked me, I said, hey, what are you, a cop? Well, you don't need to know that. But in that mob world, there is total accountability. They need to know where you're at at all times. And, and that was what was really sucked my life warm out of me because there were so many instances. Like I remember when we first went into the Nextel phones. I don't know if you can remember Nextel phones. We used to do the walkie-talkie. Well, the walkie-talkie part was I gave one of the phones that we were able to monitor to Greg De Palma. So he used to love that feature. He would be on, Jackie boy, you on, Jackie boy. And in the mob one day, I went to do another case in Atlantic City, non-related to the mob case, something else I was working. I go out there, and in the middle of my dealing, I hear, Jackie boy, you on? And that's the way he kind of sounded, very raspy, Robin Loggia-type voice. And I didn't answer it. So the next day I come back, and Greg says to me, hey, where were you yesterday? I says, I was on Atlantic City. I told you I was doing some work. So he goes, I called you. You didn't answer. I said, well, I was busy. He goes, listen to me. When I call you, I don't care what time of day it is. I says, you pick up. You understand? Because how do I know you ain't locked up? And how do I know you're not wearing a wire right now? So it was that accountability thing that concerned him because they needed to know every step of the way what was going on in your life. And, and, and that in itself, I found to, uh, uh, to be a lot. You know, I missed a lot of my family functions. Uh, a lot of my daughter who was born um, right around that time that I went undercover. So I, I missed a lot of that. And I, I could remember even my mother-in-law passing away and I'm at the wake. And sure enough, the phone goes off and Jackie boy. And I, and I, I looked at my wife and she, I said, listen, I got to take this, but she understood. And I went outside, took the phone. Now people say, well, why did you take the phone? Because if I didn't take the phone, it would have set me back so many months, maybe year, that this guy would not, it would look at me funny. Maybe he would not trust me uh, good enough. So I, I couldn't afford that because all it is, it's a slow moving process. Because what happens when you're in the mob you kind of first, you're like a hang around guy. You know, they call them knock around guys. You're in the, the group, you hang out, you get coffee, you get this, you show up, you lift into the laughter, etc. Then when you get put on record, that's when they put you on record. Craig De Palma gave me this gaudy ring, diamond ring, his most gorgeous thing. It looked like something out of Julius Caesar war. And he put me on record and he says, now you belong to us. You're under our umbrella. Nobody could harm you. You come to us. You're under our protection. You are now part of our family. So that was the first part. They put it on hold. Then as time goes on, and there are a lot of guys who all their waking moment is filled with wanting to get straightened out. I, I didn't approach it about getting straightened out. I just kept out there trying to gather intelligence, gather as much evidence as I could, and try, I keeping myself alive, I guess, for like a better I think, but I was kind of a, a, a aware of that until finally Greg offered me and he said to me, listen, I got to ask you, he says, uh, are you dealing dope at all? And I says, no, Greg, I, I'm not dealing dope. 
but you know I used to. I told him. So he says, well, has it been longer than five years? And I said, yeah, it's been longer than that. He says, don't lie to me now. Has it been longer than five years? Now, he was asking that question because of the statute of limitation, that they couldn't come after me on a drug charge if uh, after five years. So then, of course, I told him no. So he says, well, I'm going to put your name up. Do you want to be part of us? You want to be us? And I said, I would be an honor to, to have done that. And sure enough, we were moving in that direction and going in. And uh, we ran into a lot of pitfalls, a lot of short-sightedness by the Bureau. There were some people who didn't want to go through with me getting straightened out. My argument was, hey, if I get straightened out, we can introduce other undercover agents all through the country of all these other families like the Kansas City, Buffalo, uh, Chicago, and try to find out what's going on with them through my introduction. But no, they were not. They wanted to kind of shut it down. And then finally, uh, there was an issue with one of the bosses in the Bonanno crime family flipped, and it was rumored that he was flipped. So they kind of put everything by the wayside, and that's when they decided to terminate the case. Uh, I still feel that they should have uh, kept the case going. I mean, if you look back on a near infiltration as well with Donnie Brasco, the movie, he was out there for six years. I was there for almost three years. I think if I would have been given another year, this would have passed over and I would have had an opportunity to get straightened out, not only to see and identify some of these other main members that flew under the radar. I mean, I've identified at least five guys that we had no record of. And a lot of these other jobs that was happening because that's part of, again, the secret society. So when I, I guess my only regret in this case was that I was not straightened out and, and fulfill this case in the way it should have been. Every other case that I ever worked, all my dope cases, it's like you climb the ladder. You keep going up the rung till you can't go anymore. Now, here I am being put on record. Here I am being asked to be straightened out, and we don't go through it. It's like we didn't really finish what we were set out to do. And for that, it's something that, you know, I, I had to move away from it. I, I went on to work other cases, but that regret was always mine. Part of what I find so remarkable about your service is your focus um, your absolute drive and determination and your dedication to law enforcement, which started with you applying for, you know, NYPD before you even applied for the FBI and the like. The reason I bring that up now is because it's it's mind boggling to me that while you are an undercover agent infiltrated the Gambino crime family, you know, on the cusp of being invited to be straightened out, to be a made member. And yet you are also working other cases simultaneously. You're juggling so many balls in the air. And I know that one of the fundamental tenets of your service is that you did record everything, that you made sure the unintelligibles were sorted out. You made sure that every moment that you participated in was recorded accurately and clearly for the FBI. So tell me how you answered when De Palma says, are you wearing a wire? And, and tell me if there were any close calls during your time as Jack Falcone. You know, it, it, it's funny because through my whole career as an undercover, which was 24 to 26 years, no one ever questioned me wearing a wire. I think a lot had to do the way I looked 
when I was working dope, I had long, long hair. Mm. You know, I, I just didn't look the part. I didn't act the part. I, 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 I really went into my role like a, like a method actor, which is what an undercover does. So I also, the back of my mind, I always said that if somebody questions you as an undercover and wants to pat you down to see if you're wearing a wire, let's say, what would that prove? Like, if they don't find it on me, is that mistrust going to go away? No. That means that person did it for a reason. So I would then start trying to figure out a way of maybe bringing in another undercover or for the bureau to bring, because that person would not going to trust me. He's not going to pat me down and then say, oh, okay, we can talk to Jack about all that. He did it for a reason, and that was it. So luckily for me, it never happened. I attribute my size. I mean, when you're 6'4", almost 400 pounds, and, you know, you're kind of a little bit intimidating in a way that if they want to go with that, there could be some issues there. Uh, but I think it was more like uh, they, they just didn't believe that I would be an agent. Now, what scared me is I would rather they believe I was an agent than I was an informant because I could be discarded as an informant where I can't be as an agent. They're going to think twice about doing that. Although in today's world, informants are living out in the, in the open. I mean, look, Sammy the Bull, Michael Francesi, the list goes on and on. All these guys have podcasts. I mean, these are people that are that you would have never thought of having them uh, out in the open back in the 80s or the 70s or 60s. This is the Falachi era. I mean, Sammy the Bull himself, 19 murders responsible for. Here's a guy who got a sweetheart deal who goes out to Arizona and then he winds up selling ecstasy pills and creating some vast empire, the guy gets a pass and all the betraying that he did, not only within the God family, but the other family, he's free to be on television show with his daughter as well as have a successful podcast. So all of the rules have changed. And I think a lot is the bureau, I mean, the, uh, the mob has morphed itself. They know and they learn that leaving bodies on the street is bad for business. So they know that if you start having people knocking off, then the bureau is going to put the heat on. That means we're going to hit your your money houses. We're going to hit your gambling parlors. So you don't want that anymore. You want to be able to float out there unharmed and untouched. Uh, so that's one of the things that how they have changed, uh, too, because I, you would never in a million years think that these people are allowed to roam the earth. Uh, look at the other guy. What was his name from Goodfellas? Henry Hill. Henry Hill. He used to give dinner parties. He would have restaurants. They would sit there and he'd tell stories. He would advertise for a whole month. Back in the old days, they would be, i tell you one thing, that would not happen with the cartels. That, that just would not fly. So you're dealing with the softening of the mob guys. Because, again, leaving bodies on the street is bad for business. And they are also learning that, you know, the mob wants to keep their staples, you know, keep their loan shark and their bookmaking, maybe their extortion. But they're a little more uh, careful now than they were as wild cowboys in the Wild West years ago. You've mentioned your um, incredible service, you know, being undercover for almost 26 years. So 
we understand your identity was never questioned in those difficult moment ways that you just articulated. Obviously, your background was was checked in, in a few ways, including with the Gambino family. But so moving back out for a second and looking throughout your career, what close calls, though, did you encounter with with violence or with illegal activity you were witnessing that perhaps sort of cr- almost crossed the line or did cross the line between what agents could be viewing? You know, what were the rules and, and how were they, how did they come into effect with all of those decades and years of observing incredibly criminal and violent behavior across cartels and not just the organized crime families here? You know, the, the thing is, you can never lose fact that you are an agent and a law enforcement officer, that to break the oath that you take in order to enhance the case, I think it's wrong. Like, I would never betray. I would never be put in a situation where I would kill somebody or threaten to, I mean, to really kill somebody in order to maintain the case. That that just would be ludicrous on on an agent, that means that you're you're out there too deep. You've gone Stockholm syndrome. You, you you've totally lost reality of it. And as far as being involved in criminal enterprise and doing side deals and all, everything had to be approved by the bureau. And I was very technical about that. I didn't want to have any kind of a deal on my own where I free wing it. Everything was approved because I, you know I just did, to to break my the oath was very important to me. And that's what got me grounded. Uh, yes, there were calls when there were fights. There was stuff like that that happened. There were also situations where, where you know, you see crime being committed, you report it. Uh, I'll give you an example was uh, the Bloomingdale's, uh, which the beginning of my uh, book talks about where it's President's Day and we're in Bloomingdale's Westchester, which is uh, at 6 o'clock in the evening full of, housewives and husbands trying to get home uh, to their loved ones and buying maybe a gift or something, a pair of pants or clothes. And there we come, myself and acting Captain Robert Beccaro and Greg De Palma. They go looking for this gangster, mobster, a made guy that the Bureau had no knowledge of that was not showing up and paying money to Greg for operating under his uh, crew. So sure enough, we find them. Next thing you know, words escalate, and Robert Vaccaro grabs a uh, candlestick, hits him over the head. You hear a pop like it was uh, some kind of cantaloupe, and literally like brain matter and whatever was flying onto the wall. This guy drops profusely. I go down. The guy was going to hit him again. I grabbed it. I said, hey, Enough is enough. We're being filmed here. Let's get the hell out of here. The guy then gets up within two or three minutes, squabble. He goes, what did you do that for? And Vaccaro again grabs a knife, and he says, I'm going to stab you in the heart. And I grabbed that knife for going. And then sure enough, I got them all out of there. And as we're running down the escalator, the security was coming up because I'm sure there were buzzers going off everywhere. And we got in the car. And literally, the funny part about it, not the funny because that was not at any kind of humor, this poor guy could have been killed, was that Bloomingdale's was right across the FBI office. Literally, you cross the street, and there's the FBI office. And I'm in this thing, getting in the car, 
driving down the uh, the road. And the big question was, is Greg De Palma says, Robert, you have to go on record with the boss what you did. You can't put your hands on a mate guy. And that rule is very true. So Greg De Palma said, uh, Carroll goes, but don't worry about it. He was disrespectful to you. I was protecting your honor, et cetera, et cetera. And Greg says, but don't worry about it. He's assigned to me. He's got to come through me to see the boss to register a complaint, and I'll make sure that, that that goes away. So here I am driving these guys who witnessed this whole thing, and I'm going, maybe I'll be next. I'm going to get clobbed over the head with something. But it, it, it was uh, the violence was always there. Uh, that's how the, the mob operates. I mean, for years, that's how they they're claim their their power is, of course, by uh, their influence to commit violence. I mean, without that, what do you have? You know, and, and people fear them to this day. And I remember even in, in court when another interesting story, there was this construction guy, really a nice guy, really liked this guy. And he gets testified uh, in the trial of Greg De Palma. And there is his uh, Greg De Palma who's sitting in the uh, in the defense table, and he's got uh, a huge um, canister of uh, air, oxygen. He's got two uh, workers from the hospital uh, who are behind him. He's wearing a blanket. He's unshaven. I mean, he looks like he's at that store, right? And as he's sitting there uh, with a little candy bar in front, and I'm testifying, and this guy's testifying, and he says, uh, that the, uh, the uh, defense attorney says to him, let me ask you something. Why did you give this guy money? Why did you let him shake you down? Look at him. He's an old man. He says, are you afraid of him? And he answered, yes. But what people didn't understand, the jurors actually laughed, is that they weren't afraid of Greg De Palma, the 80, 70-year-old man uh, that he they saw at the end of his career, is they were afraid of what the mob symbolizes, that what they could cause, the damage that they can cause if you don't play by their rules. Because one of the things that they're great for is that they're great for creating a situation and then offering a solution. So here they are, they, they're making these people uh, like, hey, you're either going to do this or you're going to do that, similar to what the Colombians do. In Colombia, either you're going to have plomo or plata. You know, plata or plomo. You're going to either have silver yeah, yeah. or lead. Yep. So you decide which is the easiest road. Well, it's kind of the same thing with the mob, you know. Uh, there are a lot of similarities sometimes. So to me, Greg De Palma, uh, at the end, of course, I thought he was overplaying his card acting, uh, but... That's what they do. Every time mobsters get arrested, you see them in court. They all got their wheelchairs and they all got their their workers, their oxygen. But two weeks before that, they're smacking guys around. Because that's what Greg De Palma was doing, smacking guys around before uh, he winds up getting arrested by us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. What was it like for you emotionally to have to see these prosecutions? Was, was of these people that you had developed relationships with or the whole time did you separate that line and therefore it was simple 
or clean for you to say goodbye emotionally and there wasn't a derivative of a feeling toward them, of affection toward them, of relationships. Was there any truth to the affection that you felt or was it all the time squarely within the identity, the false identity of Jack Falcone? You know, that's a great question. Um, Greg De Palma, I hated. I really disliked this man. He was just personified evil. He was just, uh, the man just did not know when. I, I, I would see him constantly just belittle people, shake people down, smack people around, just, uh, just suck the life form out of everyone, including myself. There were times that I just had to walk away because I couldn't just handle this man. He would be complaining constantly, Jackie boy, I got no money. You got any fazools? I need a little something. Carry me over. Meanwhile, I had just taken him for six hours driving around picking up envelopes all over. The man had envelopes stuffed in every pocket full of money and cash, and yet he's crying about wanting money from me and others. So it was just like he was too much to handle. However, there were other guys in the mob life. This guy, Robert Vaccaro, who hit the guy over the head. I got along with Robert. We talked sports. We uh, talked television. We talked movies. We had great conversations with I got along with the guy. Uh, I, I thought he was a nice guy, but I never lost that line. I knew what he was all about. And what really like confirmed that is when he hit that guy with the stick and he was going to hit him with a, a stab him with the knife. I knew how serious that this man could be and what that like. Th these people that are involved in that life are criminals who half of them are nuts, you know, uh, and the other half just don't care if they're going to go to jail. They go to jail, they go to, it's like going to a gym or to a spa. They go for five years, they do their nickel, they work out, they make their connections. Once they come out, they go out there. So, you know, it is a criminal uh, society, but it's a one very powerful one. It's unlike the Bloods and the, uh, the Crips and all these, uh, the, uh, the other, the Latin kings, because they're, they're entrenched in every part of our society. I mean, think about the corruptions they have in the unions. Think about uh, the corruptions they have within even the police departments, the corruptions they have in, in the labor rackets and, uh, and on and on. I mean, that's very powerful uh, strength to have with these groups. Now, they might have lost some of it, but, you know, when it came to the Fulton Fish Market, when it came to the uh, the fashion, uh, what do they call that place uh, uh, downtown where the clothes are all made? The Garment District? The Garment District. They control that, the trucking of it. It's a very powerful group compared to the others. So they do carry a lot of weight, uh, the mob guys. And they're here to stay. The mob guys are here because as long as you're, you're dealing in bookmaking, as long as you're loaning money, as long as you're shaking people down, you will always have the mob. They're not going to go away. It isn't like all of a sudden tomorrow we're mob free. There's too much money in the mob. And there are guys out there that are willing to, to do anything to make that money. Yeah, another thing that struck me about um, hearing you speak before was how when you were incorporated or, or proposed into the union membership by De Palma, 
And you were like, this is better benefits than I get at the FBI. Like it was, you know, it was literally a better deal. And I'm like, yep, that sounds about right. Um, <laughs> not that I support that, but it's, you know, we all know the, the lean, sometimes the lean <laughs> packages that the government gives you. Um, but Jack, I wanted to ask you about, let's just shift briefly into, because your, your career is so prolific and there's so, there's so many chapters that you've had there. Um, you know, organized crime, the mafioso, that, that's a, a small portion, albeit, as you've said before, one of the most entertaining and um, sort of uh, appetizing topics for viewers forever. But I want to talk to you about the cartels. There's been a recent resurgence interest in that as well with, um, you mentioned earlier, the release of uh, cocaine cowboys and the like. So color for us a bit about what that was like, because the, the hints you've dropped thus far is that it's more ruthless. It was more violent. Um, it was more a lot of things than yeah. than being undercover in the mafia. Can you share a little bit about what those years were like for you as an undercover agent? Yeah, and, and more lucrative, too, may I add. I mean, as far as the money is concerned, I mean, we've done so much money seizures that we never even counted. We weigh it. See, each note weighs a gram. So we would just weigh like 20 and 20s a kilo, be worth $20,000. Yeah. So that's how we would weigh it because it was just so much money involved and so many seizures that were involved. Now, we also saw the resurgence of, of rather of heroin coming to America uh, and also seeing the Mexican cartels flourish because what had happened is the Mexicans had all the border towns controlled for illegal smuggling and whether human trafficking, whether all kinds of stuff. So what they did is they got together with the Colombians and said, look, we will transport your dope into the States. But instead of paying us for every kilo, like it's been done for years before, and that's usually the big chunk, whether sometimes three to $5,000, it says, don't pay us anything. Just give us product. Colombians liked it because it's cheaper for them to make than it is to disperse in three to $5,000. So the Mexican cartels started sending it out to L.A., to Chicago, to New York. And they were dealing with tremendous uh, amount of, of heroin quality that the Colombians were able to import Chinese chemists to come and help them with their poppy seeds and their the, the, the no longer the Chinese heroin was as good as the Colombians. Colombians were offering product like about 95%, 90% for maybe $60,000 a kilo of heroin when the other amounts were going for like 125. And that was about 50%. So as you could see, the uh, we saw that creation of the Mexican joining forces with the with the Colombians, uh, uh, that was a, a big thing that that happened in our during the early '80s that we saw. Uh, and one of the other things that we see is the ecstasy. Any kind of drug that's been out there, either may believe I dealt it, arrested it, or did with it. There's just constant new highs that come along whether it's meth, whether it's coke, whether it's heroin, whether it's ecstasy, whether it's whatever you want to call mollies, which is ecstasy. All of that stuff goes into effect. Uh, but I'm sorry, I lost track of your question, Emily. I go into these diatribes and 
right, when you start mentioning the Colombians and the cartel, because yes, they were, uh, they were more violent and made so much money that sometimes when we seize dope, we would see it buried underground. I mean, just let to think about that. You don't know what to do with money. So you would bury a million dollars in the ground. So uh, uh, that was a common uh, thing that you would see because they didn't know what to do with it. They would make the money here. Now they were trying to ship it back to Colombia because uh, that's where their money was. That they reminds me of, um, you know, when Pablo Escobar was in the castle and what what led to his escape, remember, was his men yes. burying the money, but improperly. So it was the money was destroyed. And then that sort of created it sparked the wrath by Pablo Escobar. Um, and it was after that incredibly brutal beating and, and murder that he engaged in that then um, the Colombian government said, all right, we can't support this. That, that's a massive yeah. oversimplification. But the point was bearing the money, yes, was common practice and doing it poorly meant that you sacrificed um, the integrity of it and it would you know, crumble right, away. It would dissolve. It would be actually would be dissolved. But there was so much money to be made in, in the drug world and the violence, and especially within Mexico when you see, uh, I mean, down in Nuevo, Nuevo Laredo, which is right next to Laredo. I actually was down there at Laredo, and that was the time when they chopped the heads off and they put it in these spike fences. I mean, these are things that they would they would attack their family. I mean, they were ruthless sicarios. And we haven't seen that in the mob. We've never seen the mob fluctuate more than people in their life, you know, those who are involved in the life. This is they go after your family. Uh, and that that in itself it's it's uh, it, it's it's scary what they could do because there's so much money in that and and like I said earlier is that these people come and go and they treat them as disposable sippy cups where all of a sudden one person gets arrested everything is compartmentalized it isn't like where I know where the mobsters are we have a whole dossier on each mobster we know John Gotti was this this and lives here and there. These guys just appear, and their job is just like, okay, I was told to call this number on the pager and enter these codes. The person on the other end will then respond by entering this code. Then I would communicate with them and say, meet me in such and such a street. I go to that street in New York City, meet him. He give me a set of keys, and there will be a U-Haul full of dope or money, and we would then transport it based on their instruction. Now, there was no need to ask for names. Nobody cared. It's not like the mob guys. Hey, come on, let's have a drink. Let's talk. It's more socializing. It's more who are you. They kept everything compartmentalized because if you took down this portion, this box, then you can't take the others. And that's why they've had so much success over the years is that everything is kept to a, to a minimum. It isn't where I said earlier, what everybody knows where every gangster is at every given time. Well, these guys live a whole different way of hiding themselves and changing their numbers, have countless phone numbers. Money is no option to these guys, none whatsoever. And they operate here. They operate in the U.S. Uh, in Jackson Heights. And one of the things that I was blessed with is that I worked in the NYPD FBI task force 
which was in Queens. And it consisted of 21 of the finest men and women NYPD officers I've ever had the pleasure of working with, as well as the agents of the FBI. And together, we led not just New York, but the nation in seizures, in dope, in money, and bodies. You know, which says a lot by bodies, locking up people that we're going to take and we're going to put them in jail. That That's one of the important things that we, we concentrated. We wanted to make cases on these guys, and we made some amazing cases. We had, and the way the cartels were sophisticated, there were people, each one delegated a certain job. I had an informant whose job was to provide phones. Another guy had an informant who had safe houses. Another one provided vehicles. All of these things together come together to function in this world. So in case one is taken down, it doesn't cause the domino effect. Given that, it seems that it's an insurmountable challenge. You know, it's difficult to imagine the United States being successful against pushing back of these cartels, especially given the level of corruption a lot of these cartels have engaged in with their own local and state national governments. So given that, do you see a way forward? Is it mowing the lawn on our part? Or do you see an offensive or or defensive measure that would actually work to stop, for example, the flow of fentanyl over the borders, et cetera? Yeah, um, we have to go on the uh, offensive on this. I mean, we literally have to attack, like in the old days, we would burn the labs. Remember back Mm -hmm. uh, that we would burn that we have to attack all of these places that are happening out there. We have to do it covertly. We can't sometimes seek permission. And I know we live in this world where we have to seek their permission, but the fact uh, the government, because you can't just conduct this kind of, uh, of warfare, so to speak, but it's something that needs to be done. We have to find uh, we, we can't just sit back and let it happen. It, it, it is here. It is constantly to stay. The open borders are, is, is an insanity. I came from Cuba. I lived under communism for three years under Castro before I was able to leave. And I had to go for my medicals. I had to go for all kinds of interviews. So did my family. We waited in line three years to come to America. I appreciated coming to this country very much. I feel I lived the American dream. I mean, here I am working as an FBI agent. I mean, who knew I was the second Cuban-born FBI agent? And I live. But nowadays, you're opening up these borders and and fentanyl's coming in, human trafficking. How how do we sit back and allow this to happen? And and it's there for our eyes to see. It's twenty four seven available on Fox. This is no creation. We're not making this up. And yet, I don't know what where. I don't know where our president, what is he watching? I mean, doesn't he see what's going on? I mean, it's a horror show that all these millions of people are coming to this country and uh, on their own to do whatever. And it's a shame for those who waited in line, for those who are still waiting in line. It's wrong. We'll be right back with more of this story. What lessons or what is the greatest lesson did you learn from your undercover work for your almost 26 years? That not everybody could do undercover work. You know, undercover work is a, is a, uh, it's a niche that certain people have. 
I remember when the movie Silence of the Land came out and everybody wanted to be an FBI agent <laughs> to be in that, that unit. Oh, I want to study psychology. It doesn't work that way, you know? And the same thing with undercover. This is not something you could teach. Even though I learned this and I was a teacher, it's just, this is something you're born with. It's something that you, you, you can't make an undercover. We're already made. And that's why not everybody could be one because it's a very dangerous job. It's difficult because you could be exposed at any time that maybe get you hurt, but others hurt too. And maybe future undercovers, you know, hurt. So my life as an undercover is that there, there's so much crime in the world and the laws that we have allow criminals to just keep committing crime uh, over and over again. And the fact that that has to stop. I mean, even what you see in New York nowadays, the open door policies. I, I used to be a New Yorker. I grew up in the Bronx. First, I grew up in Washington Heights, then the Bronx. And now I wouldn't even go back there, you know, unless I'm carrying my gun with me. And, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's insane what you see in New York. It just hurts me to see New York being destroyed and crime. But you need to put people and just like in the mob where you have to be accountable, you have to be accountable for your crimes you commit. If you do something wrong and you break up, uh, if you hurt somebody, kill somebody, maim somebody, beat somebody up, you know what? Go to jail. Learn your lesson. But that's not the way it works today. Is there still an active, any active bounty on your head with all of your undercover work? Um, are you, do you feel and are you safe from all of these organized crime members and cartels and the mob and more? Are they still, or is anyone after the undercover false identity that you had when you penetrated any of them? Yeah, I, I'm a believer that, um, as you know, is the in the mob, as far as issuing a contract, I don't believe that, and I'll tell you why. Because if you're in the mob, and I'm the boss, and I want to kill Jack Garcia, I simply get one of my soldiers and say, I want you to whack Jack. There's no money. There's no bounty. Who Who's going to kill? Let's say another person comes along and decides to kill me. Where is he going to go? Is he going to go to Arnold Scutieri? Is he going to go to whoever the boss is and say, hey, I killed Jack Garcia. Now, where's my $200,000? It doesn't work that way. They work on orders. You, you're told to whack somebody. You whack somebody. That, that, that's it. Now, if you ask me about, am I worried about the cartels? Absolutely, because they play by different rules. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these guys are savages. They're crazy. And they, they'll commit uh, some, they don't care. They'll take you out in front of, of your family. And, and that's one of the kind of things you have to be very careful with uh, nowadays uh, uh, when you work this kind of work. But as far as the mob guys are concerned, I, they know that if they take out an agent, the reign of terror is going to fall upon them and that we're just going to make their their life a living hell. And I think they're smarter than that. Now, I could be out one night, maybe at a bar, and some half a, half an ass wise guy sees me. He's had a few. He's into his cups. And then all of a sudden he sees me and one think he's going to make a name of himself and either give me a beating or take care of me. Now, he may do that, but if he goes back and tells the boss, 
he's going to have a problem because the boss is going to say, now look what you did. So, you know, all about with the mob now is flying underneath the radar. So as far as the mob is not, you know, a concern, as far as me, I don't believe in anybody they take uh, that. Cartels are different because, hey, they got the money. And the mob guys are so tight because they name streets after them one way. Everything goes to them. So there is no way they're going to depart 200000 500000 to whack that. Now, has it been done? Yes, they did it in the past with the Polito case in Caracapa. There were cops who were dirty. They were paid. But messing with an agent is no good. Do you miss that life, or are you glad that it's now behind you? Oh, miss it terribly. Miss it terribly. It's my adrenaline. I mean, there's no better feeling than sitting there with a bad guy doing a deal, maybe toasting a drink and looking him in the eyes and looking at your hand and your hand's not shaking. And you like, you say, I got you, man. I got you fair and square. Keep talking because that tape is rolling. You miss that. It's just such a, such a high. And now, you know, what do I do now? I, I drive my wife to, to the store. I drive my daughter to school. You know, I, I became a civilian. <laughs> and and it's tough. It's tougher in this level, you know, but you do miss that excitement. There's always something going on. You're getting in your plane, you're flying to Miami, you're going here, you're doing this, you, you're meeting with them, and everything was a puzzle. You know, getting it, it's like they're, they're out there being kept from us, and we're trying to get them, and, and it's a high game of, of dangerous chess, you know, and uh, loved every minute and miss it all the time. But do you still teach, right, at the at the academy? And so the the next generation is learning and benefiting, and um, you're influencing them tremendously. In addition, just to the legacy that you've left in service, that too is inspiring others, definitely. Well, yeah, you know, I'm, I used to teach more, but now that I relocated, not for any fear or anything like that. Uh, but anyway, so but I, I do miss the teaching, everyone. But I do offer consult to any undercover. I get calls from case agents. Look, I got a rookie undercover. He's got some issues. Can you talk to the guy? And I'm more than willing 24-7 to help another agent. I just don't want to put anybody in harm's way, not only with the bad guy, but also have them. I've seen too many dark uh, stories. I've seen guys who have left their families. I've seen guys become alcoholics. I've guys who've had some issues not just in the FBI, but in all law enforcement. It's a very thing that would consume you. And you have to be careful. You got to be prepared for this mentally because it will eat you alive. It's a fake world that we're living in as an undercover. And it's a very dangerous world. And uh, you, you can't let it, you can't let it take you in because it will destroy you. Jack Garcia, thank you so much for your service and for sitting down with us today, for sharing these stories, for sharing your insight um, and being so authentic and open with us because you have such an incredible lifetime, such a saturated career of information to share. And we just, it's incredible to hear it. I'll leave the last word to you, sir. You know, Emily, thank you. I watch you every, like I said, every day as possible. You guys are great. You're great. And, uh, Thanks for this opportunity. Maybe somebody there would uh, want to pursue law enforcement uh, and get into uh, undercover work. They could get a hold of me anyway. I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, I will gladly offer any advice 
that I can to them and just a great opportunity for me to tell us what the real street agents do out there in the FBI, the men and women in the FBI do daily without the rest of the minutia that's going on. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.